Hey there, and welcome to Dirt Rich, seasonal conversations about food and farming. I'm Jared Lumen, the Soil Health Lead for the Sustainable Farming Association. Today we're going to have a conversation with Anna Cates of the Minnesota Office for Soil Health. She's always working on some neat things up there and has a pretty exciting project they're working on right now, which she'll share a little bit more about later. But Anna, welcome to the Dirt Rich Podcast. Thanks, Jared. Yeah, no, thanks for making some time to talk to me. I'm curious how you got to where you are today. You know, what was your, what was your story leading you into working in this, this role with the Minnesota Office of, uh, for Soil Health? Sure. Well, the most immediate path was that I did some graduate work in the University of Wisconsin-Madison on uh, soil health properties, soil carbon, cycling, and different cropping systems. But I would say I was drawn to work in agriculture from long before then. Mm -hmm. My parents raised animals in a cow-calf operation in southern Wisconsin when I was just a little kid on land that my grandfather had bought because he didn't want his four sons to grow up in Madison and not have anything to do physically. (laughs) So he was selling hay out of his downtown law offices. And my dad ran crops on that farm for, I don't know, five years or so between 17 and 22 and then came back. So I lived there when I was a little kid. And uh, then I grew up mostly in Montana, but always had an interest in agriculture and worked on small organic vegetable farm CSAs from you know, five acres to 70 acres for a couple of years, and then decided I wanted to learn something about how production agriculture worked. Mm -hmm. And in particular, you know, I'm thinking about this from an environmental sustainability lens, and what are the changes we can make to the crops that cover most of our landscape that might have a positive effect on water quality and other environmental outcomes. So I think a lot about those questions. Can we make incremental changes on a large scale? Do we need to make big changes on a small scale? What are the sort of pieces that we can do in the big system to move towards a more sustainable system. Man, those are like the questions that I have myself as well that I'm, uh, you said, can we make big changes on small scale or small changes on big scale? I have this discussion with people, you know, what is, what is the right mode (laughs) of action to go? Because they're both going to require a lot of mental capacity and, and everything. Have you come to a conclusion? Have you solved the problem or what, what are your thoughts on those questions? Yeah, I haven't solved the problem, Uh, (laughs) but I'm I'm working on it every day. Um, So my job right now is supposed to focus on middle adopters and really row crop farmers who are more entrenched in traditional uh, conventional ag practices. And so I'm working on the incremental side right now. And I try to keep more of an eye on what's going on on the more transformative side, things like what's happening with the Forever Green Initiative on campus, things like the work that SFA and LSP are doing around grazing and more obviously sustainable options than a row crop mm-hmm. system with reduced tillage and cover crops. Oh, that's, that's interesting. And I appreciate that that kind of position you're in where you kind of have to balance this, you know, the, the out there stuff, but also realizing that the people you're working with, they're not ready maybe to just jump all in with something yeah. crazy out there, a hundred percent no-till cover crops on every acre. Although I have met some people who are wild enough to go a hundred percent in all, you know, Oh, this sounds neat. Let's just do it all, you know, sell the tillage equipment. I know it's, it's wild. And I have a whole lot of respect for those people, but I know, I know. Well, it's so emotional, right? Uh, like you say, people are either ready or they're not. And uh, when people make a decision about their farm, they're not just making a decision based on our university research or any other research showing erosion rates or nutrient loading rates. They're making a decision based on how they want their life to look. And yeah. if what yeah. they want their life to look like is still growing corn and soybeans, then 
it's their farm and their life and they have, mm-hmm. you know, the right to make that choice to a large extent. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And also, you know, profitability and, and just having a business that that can actually function. A lot of the things that the Forever Green Initiative and some farmers are doing requires a tremendous amount of extra work and, and things that there's not infrastructure right. almost designed for it. And so you have to work with where they're at. And what are some right. of the ways that you've in, in your past work with MOSH or Minnesota Office for Soil Health that you've kind of done? Or what are some of the projects that you're working on that help farmers to take incremental steps towards improving soil health with coming from the, their own context and where they're at? Well, one big focus of our Office for Soil Health is to work with soil and water conservation districts around the state. You know, I think about the the number of relationships I can, can sustain. I can't talk to every farmer in the state, but there's probably 50 soil and water conservation districts that do ag work, and I can have a relationship with all of those people pretty easily. And they can be better points of contact for the farmers who work in their counties. So a big focus of our office is to make sure there's good soil health training for uh, soil and water conservation district employees and for NRCS employees. I've worked Mm -hmm. with kind of the federally mandated training through NRCS and also the Bowser Academy training that SWCDs go through annually. And uh, just try to see what they need in terms of soil health education. There's a lot of hands-on assessment that those districts are learning to do that can help them show the people who enroll in their incentive programs that something has happened to their soil over mm. time. And so that's that's a big part of my education program is trying to make sure that every farmer can call someone in their county who is knowledgeable. Not necessarily that they can call me, but that they can call someone in their county. Some do call me and that's fun too. I always like hearing what's going on around the state. Yeah. Oh, that's, that is cool. I, I you're right. I mean, you couldn't be expected to meet with everybody, but I like that you're working with the resources that are there. And when you talk to them about soil health, I'm curious, first of all, how, how do you define soil health and, and what metrics are you using maybe to, to gauge soil health with the farmers and the organizations that you're working with? Uh, I like the NRCS definition of soil health that calls soil health uh, the ability of the soil to function as a vital living ecosystem. A couple things in there I like are the vital living ecosystem part that points to the biological functions that sustain um, the biological activity that sustains a lot of the soil functions we care about and the soil capacity to filter water or to uh, support plants too. And then the other piece of that definition I like is soil function, because I always encourage people when they're thinking about soil health to define the functions that would be a healthy soil for them. You know, farmers want to grow crops, and that's a perfectly legitimate function. One of your functions should be to grow healthy corn or to grow healthy pasture or to grow healthy animals, right? That is a function that you need to be paying attention to and and care Mm -hmm. about. So that's how I think about soil health. In terms Mm -hmm. of assessment, There's sort of a balance. Uh, My office is definitely interested in making sure we have good scientific metrics for soil health, things like different active carbon and nitrogen pools in the soil. That's a lot of what I measure because I'm interested in organic matter cycling. And those are relevant. They show us that the microbes have stuff to eat. They show us that the microbes are cycling organic matter actively. But I also 
a lot of what the districts can use on the ground is visual assessments. So does everybody who is going to be out there with a farmer, do they have the capacity to look at a handful of soil and say something about the structure and say something about um, how that's going to affect water behavior? Those are pieces that I always encourage people to look for on the ground. There's definitely a lot you can do without sending anything to a lab, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Last year, uh, it was summer 2020, uh, SFA got kind of a, we did a project with Kiss the Ground out in California to do some in-depth soil testing and research with farmers across the state. And it took Neat. some of this stuff and some of these fields with rocks and clay. I mean, it took two, myself and my coworker, you know, eight hours with an excavator, a mini excavator and things. I mean, uh, just to, to get wow. some of this stuff that it was ridiculous. So to expect farmers to be able to do all of these things, I mean, it, yeah, you're right. You can't expect them all to be able to do that, but there's definitely visual in- indicators and simple tests. And I, I don't know if, you know, right. you're part of it, like the water, the rainfall simulator that the NRCS, that have a couple trailers that go around and things. It's so neat to be able to see visually yes. what's happening when you start to implement some soil health principles. Yes, I love that. You know, my first uh, research interest was soil carbon because it's Mm. such an interesting and dynamic part of the soil. But in a state like Minnesota, where we have such high soil carbon already, what is important about soil carbon on the landscape seems to be water behavior. If you have Mm. high carbon, which is allowing for soil to have good aggregation, then you change your water behavior. And that's what starts to affect people's quality of life, uh, their ability to produce a crop in a a variety of different weather conditions and that kind of thing. So I love the rainfall simulator. I think it's a great demonstration of kind of integrating those properties, the biological properties, the plant properties, and then the water hydrology behavior. Yeah. And that was a good segue because that's kind of related to this new project that you're doing, I think now. Do you want to talk a little bit about what your goals are? Maybe, you know, why you came to to wanting to do this project in the first place? Well, uh, My appointment at the university is 30% research and 70% extension. And so the Mm. extension research inform each other. Uh, Those aren't exact on any given day, but let's just say that's the approximate (laughs) division. Sure. Uh, So the... um, I kept hearing from farmers who were implementing soil health practices that they're able to get into the field earlier. Sometimes it's a really Mm. dramatic story like, oh, you know, that eight inch rain we got in June, I was out there two days later planting my whatever. Or, you know, I was able to fertilize on time or get a timely herbicide spray after rain and my neighbors were just sitting there. You hear about it with sweet corn harvest a lot in southern Minnesota. You know, the trucks couldn't come out on, you know, Jerry's field, but they came out on my field and they were shocked because of my good soil structure. So that's the story I'm hearing. And that is really not reflected in the scientific literature. We Hmm. see sometimes metrics like... um, like aggregate stability or sometimes infiltration used to characterize soil health. But I was really interested in what is happening after a rain in that field with soil health practices that would get you to that effect of having a truck be supported earlier. Mm-hmm. And there's a few different things that could be happening. One is just that it's drier, that the infiltration is fast and the soil actually gets drier faster. The other thing is that the soil structure is such that you can get a bunch of rain and the soil is really wet, but it's strong enough to support a big truck anyway. So either one of those could give you that outcome in the end, but there's not a lot of research on it. So I'm tracking um, a few pairs of conventional and soil health fields. I've found some really awesome sites with all of them at least 
seven years and two of them like a couple of decades of soil health practices in place compared with neighbors who conventionally till. And we're watching the soil before and after rainfall to kind of watch that process. Like you get a big rain, we know how much rain there is from the rain gauge, we see how much moisture there is, and we're looking at the soil stability in terms of aggregates after that rainfall, whether it um, whether those big rains kind of dissolve the aggregates in a conventionally tilled field because they don't have the the kind of organic matter to hold it together. Yeah. And so what does that mean? For a farmer, I don't know if you have like research or data, I guess people, I always hear people say how important it is to get in as soon as you can. And every day in the spring amounts to X amount of bushels in the fall. Do you have any sort of data yet that quantifies maybe the value of that benefit of soil health? That's a good question. I don't have those numbers off the top of my head. I know the corn and soybean extension pages have those numbers about like how many days later and how many bushels you lose. But in terms of what our data shows so far, in 2020, we did a little pilot study and we did show that uh, the fields with cover crops and reduced tillage were drier enough so that you got about three extra working days in the spring season. Um, so that's something, you know, and, and the timing of those days in a given year will matter a lot. Sure. So like I said, we're trying to just trace down this story, figure out if this is you know true or provable from a scientific perspective. And then uh, we're also doing a survey, which is the part that SFA has been working with us. So we're asking farmers, no matter what their practice is, to talk about um, when they're able to get into the field in the spring and fall working seasons, uh, what their practices are, and how much a, a given rain might impact impact their ability to do field work. So we're just also trying to collect some survey data to see if there is a trend statewide or in certain regions of people who do less tillage or use cover crops actually getting more days in the field. Yeah, and I wanna I wanna ask you where, where people can find that survey. But yeah, I mean, I know you said that that survey is for farmers of any practices, but some of these farms that you're researching that you're doing on-site testing and stuff, you mentioned that they've been doing mm -hmm. soil health practices for years or even decades in some scenarios. What are these farmers implementing? What, what are the soil health practices that they're doing that are what you're kind of monitoring? Yeah. Uh, well, we have the two that are really long term. We have somebody who's been strip tilling for, I think, almost 30 years and somebody who's been no tilling for, uh, I think that one might be a 30 year history also, wow. at least 25. And wow. both of those guys aren't huge cover crop users. They kind of dabble in cover crops, you know, use them mm -hmm. some years in rotation, but not every year. One of them really likes a real light rate of cereal rye, not a heavy amount. Sure. So they, they use cover crops to some extent. The third one has a little bit, I believe he has a little longer rotation. I think he has a small grain in rotation like oats, and then he'll do a cover crop after that. And he's just started to use no-till in the last like seven years. But sure. uh, so that's how long it's a shorter history, but a more diverse rotation than the other two who I think are both corn, soybean primarily. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And I like how those are examples of things that are kind of simple steps. I mean, we're not yeah. asking people to I guess it, it's all relative, I guess, but some of the things yeah. that I work with people on, I mean, I see people doing of 60 inch row corn interseeding cover yeah. crops with airplanes and drones or drills or whatever it is. I mean, there's some wild things you can do, but simple little steps for, you know, towards no-till or strip till or throwing in a cover crop. Mm -hmm. and, and are you seeing that those little bits, those little steps towards soil health in the brief amount of time you've been monitoring this, have you seen some of the results that you maybe had uh, anticipated? 
We don't have our uh, organic matter type data, our more soil health um, lab test data yet. But okay. anecdotally, from what the graduate student has seen in the field, just the the real typical observations like, gosh, my boots are really muddy when I'm in this mm. conventional mm -hmm. field. And when, when I cross the road, it's pretty yeah. dry. Um, yeah. Or, you know, when you just look at the soil in your hand, the aggregate stability is clearly greater in the soil health fields. And um, yeah, just on that, what you said about incremental changes, or these are just small changes that people can make. I mean, adding that third crop in rotation can be completely radical, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of how it changes your workload and changes the uh, uh, markets you have to figure out and have access yeah. to, you know, that's just that alone can sometimes mm -hmm. be really difficult for people to figure out for the first time. And I think it can make a big difference too, especially if it's a small grain third crop where you have opportunity mm -hmm. for at least a full season, a longer season cover crop in one phase of the rotation. That's a, a good point. I, like I said, the difference or the changes in how drastic they are is, is completely, you know, relative to the individual's tolerance, I suppose, yes. for change and stuff. And yeah. It's one I of don't... these individuals actually has maybe, I think, uh, 10 or a dozen steers or something too, that he's feeding. And I think that has made a huge difference in how he thinks about his cropland also in terms of like, oh, I'm going to, you know, bail some of that cover crop residue or that kind of thing. And that's another one where it's quote unquote simple. He's doesn't have a huge cattle operation, but having 10 animals in his front yard yeah. has got him thinking differently about how to treat all of his acres. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's a great point. And I appreciate you, uh, you, you bringing that up because I don't want to diminish, you know, anybody's what they consider to be a drastic change. Cause any step in this direction is, is, you know, wonderful. It's great. That's what we're encouraging mm -hmm. everybody where they're at to consider how you can maybe implement soil health principles in your context. And it doesn't have yeah. to be, uh, the next Gabe Brown, uh, you know, pulling all the nutrients, <laughs> uh, all all his inputs off, and and just going all in. It you know it, where you're at. There's there's steps to make someday for sure. Yeah, for sure. Right, that would be that'd be exciting. I mean, it, it's exciting to think of the potential, and it's kind of why I, I like what you're doing, working with the industry that is represents the majority of the acres out there. Is that if you just think, I mean, just my dad and I drive down the highway and we look and say like, gosh, how neat would it be? Or what would this world be like if all of these fields we can see were just green in the fall? Like they, they were, right. you know, had a cover crop on it. I mean, like 90 million acres of corn, 90 million acres of beans, you know, all these acres that an individual farm, you know, I mean, the change is, is incredible and it's exciting to think about that potential uh, landscape change. Yeah, I know. I think about that when I drive around too, you know, driving around in the winter isn't supposed to be the pretty or interesting time of year, but you learn a lot about farmers' practices when you drive around when the ground is bare, when something's mm -hmm. not growing. All the cornfields look the same in September or August, but yeah. they don't look the same at this time of year when you can see how much residue is there and how much disturbance mm -hmm. there's been and all yeah. those pieces. And also traffic, that kind of thing. You can tell whether people have been in there when it's wet. Hopefully this year people had enough time to take care of the soil and kind of take their time. I hope we see a little bit less damage. Yeah. Yeah. And whether well, you bring up a point there of time and stuff, this research you're doing right now, I suppose in a year like this where it's dry may not have people thinking about the importance of it. But if we look back at, what was it, 2018 and 19? I mean, how yeah. amazing or how valuable would have been a couple more days of ability to work. 
Yeah, exactly. And I'm definitely impacted by the fact that I arrived in the state in 2018, 2019, when it was <laughs> sure. so wet. That was a very wet cycle. And this mm-hmm. year, we didn't get a lot of heavy rain events. So we're not going to have as much good data like that. I, I'm hoping for just a couple in 2022, not not another 2018, <laughs> but just a couple hard rains for my research would be great. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But So for 2021, what the story is, is, you know, we are monitoring soil moisture over all this time. And deep in the profile, those soil health systems do have more moisture. So I'm hoping that we're going to be able to put together the story that there is high infiltration at the surface, letting the water trickle down deeper in the profile where it's stored for long term during a drought like this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that's a, a good point. I wasn't even considering it is thinking of the benefits of these on a wet year. But I mean, we saw it on our farm again, anecdotal. And be, I'm actually that brings up an idea I want to talk or ask you about, but you know, an, yeah. an, anecdotal kind of observation we made this year is, I mean, it was incredible to see how deep roots were going in our perennial pastures and things like that this year on a dry year. And, and I don't know, just, it was, it was neat to see how things respond in, in a dry year when we've been managing in a certain way. And I yeah. I've shared the story in a, I think a podcast or something before, and I forget where and stuff, but this summer we got caught out in the rain and went out and crossed the fence and to see what the neighbor's field was looking like versus ours, a tilled field versus a pasture and stuff. And in the, and, and the, with no rain for weeks, like three, four, five weeks, one would assume it was only a half inch of rain. We had total that it would all infiltrate. The ground should be dry like a yeah. sponge, but there was streams of water running down in between the rows of beans, wow. even though the ground was dry. And, and, you know, it's not about how much rain we get in these dry years. It's how much rain we can keep and, and, Prepping, prepping right. our soil to take advantage of every drop of water when we need it is going to be important. Right. The first step to keeping your rain is letting it in on the surface there. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. anything that prepares that surface, whether it's residue there or just good structure, you know, that's really, really letting yeah. the water in for the first step. Yeah. And kind of the question that popped into my mind there that I wanted to ask you about is kind of a research scientist coming from that background. How do you weigh observational science, I guess you could say, or like anecdotes, stories you hear from farmers and stuff to how much weight do you put on those versus a a more of a a confined, limited variable research plot or something? Well, they're for different purposes, in my opinion. You know, I have to publish some papers in scientific journals for my job. That's part of my job. And I'm Mm -hmm. also interested in in showing the big picture the big picture mechanisms and trends that we can only understand with replicated data collected really consistently in a scientific manner, right? That's, that is how we will sort of show the, the true mechanisms behind some of these things, I think, sure. is for controlled studies. But a lot of my controlled studies, like I said, are informed by what I'm hearing observationally. Like one thing we're thinking of adding to this uh, study about field workability is a survey of rocks on the surface of fields because you always hear that no-till farmers don't have to pick rocks anymore. And what does that mean? Are there actually fewer rocks on the surface or are they just not running into them with their points anymore? I don't know. Sure. Uh, yeah. So there's a survey that would be interesting to do and also helpful. But when I think about you know the value of the observational data is that it can help convince somebody to adopt something new because it Mm -hmm. has the compelling details of an individual's experience. Mm -hmm. And I don't really think that if I collect this data, it'll necessarily convince 
all the farmers to do anything in particular. Um, mm-hmm. But I'd like to see whether the scientific mechanism kind of backs up the sure. uh, narrative that I hear. And yeah. then it gives me, it gives me uh, credibility. It gives some credibility to that narrative. So then I can use that narrative yeah. more in my work because it's, it mm-hmm. is my job to present the scientific uh, story as we know it. And yeah. the narratives, um, you know, those are other people's jobs to present. My job is to make sure that I'm presenting the scientific side of the story. Yeah. And I like how you're basing some of like the, the research projects you want to do on things that you're hearing. I mean, you're, you're not just saying, yeah. oh, that doesn't mean anything. It's just a, a farmer heard this or something. You're saying, hey, a farmer heard this. This this could yeah. be cool. It's an interesting let's, story. Yeah, yeah. let's, back, let's, let's, figure it let's out. back this up with some data, you know, so that we can have some credibility or something. Yeah. I like that. I once read a paper. It was like a very scientific study of why it's hard for researchers to work on farms to do on farm agricultural research. And the gist of it in the end was that farmers want to know why is that happening over there? Why does this corner (laughs) not work for me? And researchers have to say something that's broad. That's like, Mm -hmm. this Mm -hmm. is why it's happening everywhere or most places or in these environments. They can't, uh, we can't spend all our time just trying to understand this corner, but that corner can be really informative. It's probably representing some process or phenomena, which a researcher should understand. So if you can incorporate a lot of those corners to make that replication, then maybe you can you can actually respond to the farmer's <laughs> question more clearly. But unfortunately, we can't look at everybody's back corner and tell them why things aren't working there. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That would be nice. But no, that that's yeah, a great... Would. That's a great perspective. I, I appreciate that because I know that, that, I mean, probably you hear from different people how research doesn't work in the real world. And on the other side, you know, farmers that doesn't have any data and stuff. I mean, there's no reason we can't use all of these as tools to help, you know, move us in a direction that ultimately, you know, moves towards that large landscape change. You know, if we can get yeah. good stories and anecdotes and, and good data to back it up and hopefully align them together, like you're talking about, you know, that's, that's great. Yeah. I don't think anybody changes their mind because of research. I think they change their mind because they start to believe a different story. Sure. So mm-hmm. I recognize the value of that part. On that, that uh, the project you're working on now, where do people go to find this survey? We can put it in our, we'll try and link it in our show notes here and stuff so people can see it there. Uh, but where, where would yeah. people go to take that survey? And is there anything else that you're looking for farmer involvement on? Or is it primarily just that survey? Uh, in the case of that project, just this survey, uh, the link is z.umn.edu slash fieldwork survey. And um, I think we'll be tweeting about it pretty regularly over the winter. My Twitter handle is at MNSoil. And so we'll try to be promoting it in a few different ways this winter. But z.umn.edu slash fieldwork survey. And it should take about 10 minutes as a Qualtrics survey. Okay. Awesome. Well, thanks. Is there anything else on the project that you want to share or maybe other work that you're doing with the Office of Soil Health that would be valuable to the listeners? Sure. Um, Yeah, I'll just share one other project I'm working on, which is uh, around trying to measure and better understand soil erosion. You know, I always say you can't have healthy soil if you're losing your soil. So soil Mm -hmm. erosion is definitely the baseline issue we need to address for soil health in the state. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to measure, you know, where does it go when it leaves? How, how fast does it go? Which days does it go? And, and mm-hmm. are you talking about wind blown or waterborne sediment that's leaving? So it's been a real trick to try and get a visual of erosion. But I'm using a couple different methods. I have something that looks kind of like a, a weather vane about a foot off the ground that 
spins around with the wind and has a little hole in it to collect the the sediment blowing into it in a bucket. Huh. So that's one thing I'm trying to figure out. And then I also have a little method where we have a little mat on the ground and we pick it up every few weeks to see how much sediment has blown onto the mat and that sediment that's moving along the surface of the soil. So yeah. one thing I'm really interested in is trying to get a good visual of erosion happening in different systems in Minnesota so that farmers can see that, yes, soil is moving, you're losing it. And it's an important thing to address. Well, that would be really neat. I've I've heard people say, and I don't know where they get the numbers and stuff, but like, what's the biggest export of the United States? It's not corn. It's not beans. It's soil. You know, I don't know <laughs> if that's true or not. I have no idea. Uh, I've also heard quantify like uh, you're losing an eighth of an inch or whatever it is of, of soil every year on, on average and stuff. And is, is any of yeah. that true? And, and <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about the export part. I mean, that's that's the thing that that number like an eighth of an inch, that's probably from some model data. And that's yeah. really hard to see tangibly as a mm-hmm. farmer, as a landowner, yeah. a steward uh, of the land. But if you can see like the the physical soil built up in, in one of these devices or have mm-hmm. a good sense of how much is moving along a mile of roadside or something like that yeah. um, on a given day during the winter, I feel like those things could be a little bit more visual. But that's something I'm working on is trying to develop these visuals. I'm working in Western Minnesota yeah. with sugar beet growers to try and improve their practices because um, beet growing is a really difficult a uh, difficult one to get any reduced tillage or cover mm-hmm. crops into. And mm-hmm. so I'm working with the companies and with some really great cooperators in Western Minnesota to try and understand those systems and yeah, to keep our soil in place to start yeah. with. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate the work you're doing. It It's stuff that impacts all of us as farmers, but I don't think any of us farmers want to have to deal with like, I mean, I don't <laughs> even know, I don't even know how you begin to, you know, measure some of these things. So I'm glad there's people out there like you who are interested and able to do it. Um, but I also just appreciate you coming on today and sharing a little bit of your project. Uh, give you one more chance to maybe plug anything that you want to plug through the office of soil health and maybe share that link again here, uh, for the, the survey. Sure. Well, we're doing in-person programming this winter. I'll be at the Soil Management Summit and uh, a few other meetings around the state. So I hope to talk to people. Please come up and say hi. Ask any questions about the survey um, or about anything else we're working on. That's z.umn.edu slash fieldwork survey. So hope to see some of you out and about this year. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jared. Dirt Rich is produced by the Sustainable Farming Association. We believe that agriculture, done well, heals. For more resources or to tap into the Farmer to Farmer Network, visit us at sfa-mn.org.